If you've looked ahead already at page 7 of your bulletin, then I know what you're thinking. A five-point sermon? We're going to be here all day. Well, I have you until the picnic this afternoon, right? No, I'm just kidding. We won't, we won't be here all day. Last week, we looked at that, that uh, fascinating picture, the passage of Luke's that he gives us of Jesus, the 12-year-old boy in the temple. And we saw there how he demonstrates himself as both a son of man and also the son of God. And now in Luke chapter 3, we fast forward about 17 or 18 years or so. Just before God, with baptism, would confirm Jesus as his son. And then Satan, with temptation, would challenge the legitimacy of Jesus as son And at this point, in Luke 3, another figure, a rather well-known one, heralds Jesus as the Son of God by previewing the good news that he would bring. This is Luke's account of John the Baptist, Luke 3, beginning in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to, the son of Ze- uh, to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages." As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, 
his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would grant to us your spirit again this morning and help us to see, help us to recognize the good news that you give to us in Jesus and through the ministry of John the Baptist. And help us to believe, Father, we pray that you would help us to trust you because we confess, as always, that if you don't, then we won't. But if you do, then, Lord, our hearts and our minds and our bodies, our souls will respond and be made new in you again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Dating back about 20 years or so, Time Magazine has annually published their list of the most influential people in the world. And you may or may not pay any attention to that list, perhaps. Maybe you're not among those most influential people if you don't pay attention to that list, I guess. But as you can imagine, it's filled with politicians and entertainers and athletes and philanthropists and artists and business titans. There are a lot of people that could be influential in the world. And so the managing editor of Time Magazine explained the difficulty of choosing this list. He said, influence is hard to measure. So what we look for is people whose ideas, whose example, whose talent, whose discoveries transform the world we live in. Influence is less about the hard power of force than the soft power of ideas and example. But of course, the value of these ideas and examples depends on the perspective of the evaluator himself, doesn't it? So, what was Jesus' perspective? What would Jesus have to say about the most influential person in the world? Who who was Jesus' MIP, his most influential person in the world? Well, he declared it a little bit later in Luke Luke will tell us about it. Uh, Jesus is speaking to a crowd about John the Baptist, and he says this. He says to them, what did you go out to the wilderness to see regarding John? He says, did you go out there to see a reed shaken by the wind? No. No, he, he says, you went out there to see a prophet, but John is more than a prophet. Of him it was written, behold, and he quotes from an Old Testament prophet, he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater, more influential than John the Baptist. The most influential person in the world, according to Scripture, according to Jesus himself, was a camel hair wearing locust-eating, wilderness-dwelling prophet, John the Baptist. Why? Because he was more than a prophet. He was a, a transitional figure, as it were, between Old Testament and New, as we would see it, between Old Covenant and New Covenant, between the first part of redemptive history and the next part of redemptive history. John was a transitional figure between those eras. He was a bold figure who, by faith, came as a herald of the good news yet to come. And he is a preview of that good news himself. 
by more than just ideas and examples, but by his words and his very life, John declared some things about that good news in order to break the ground, to sow the seeds, to prepare the way for the one who would come to bring it. So what about that good news did John declare? The first thing he declares here in this picture that Luke gives us is that that good news is small in the eyes of the world. Luke places the start of John's prophetic work in some historical context here, beginning in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Luke gives all this historical marker to show us the context in which John's prophetic work began. He, he lists out all the major players of the region of the day and even some minor ones as well. And Luke shows the coming of this good news juxtaposed then with the, the headline makers of his world and time to show that in the eyes of the world, this good news that's coming is very small. It doesn't compare very well to to all that surrounds it. I mean, think about what the modern version might be. Something like like this. In the fifth year of the presidency of Lyndon B. Johnson, John Connolly being the governor of Texas and John Eric Johnson being the mayor of Dallas during the pastorate of W.A. Criswell at First Baptist Church downtown and during the height, the height of Reverend Billy Graham's worldwide crusades, a baby boy was born to Charles and Kay Peters at Baylor Hospital near downtown Dallas. You get the picture, right? You know, the response to all that is about the last phrase, who cares? So what? I mean, what does that have to do with anything in comparison to all that's just been listed before it? The notable political and religious leaders of the day serve the purpose of placing John's good news in some historical context. And that context makes it look really small in the eyes of the world. But Luke knows better, doesn't he? Luke knows much better than that for what he's preparing for his friend Theophilus as he describes this good news. And Luke must have smiled at the irony of his own writing as he wrote it because I think what he's really after is to point out that this news is really, 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 really big. It's very big. I mean, this is a typical opening. John, John's introduction here is the typical opening for the historical orientation of a prophet's work. In the Old Testament, you find the same sort of thing. The prophet Jeremiah is introduced as, as in the 13th year of Josiah, king of Judah. Ezekiel, the prophet, is introduced as the 5th year of Exile of King Jehoiakim. Hosea comes in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And they're not the only ones, others as well. And in each case, what happened in that historical setting with those prophets is this. The word of the Lord came. That birth to the Peters family in 1968 was big to them, maybe. But Luke's irony 
is that the coming of the word of God is actually the biggest event that ever can possibly happen in this world. Under all the swirling currents of political events and social events and economic events that you see in the news around you and in your communities and beneath the attention-grabbing actions of mayors and governors and presidents and kings, when the good news of the word of God comes to his people, there is nothing greater. There is nothing bigger happening, not on any day or week, And not in any place or time, even if it seems small in the eyes of the world, there is nothing bigger than the coming of the word of God to his people. Do you really believe that? Do you really recognize the truth of that reality as Luke portrays it to us? I mean, think about our friend and missionary Luke Smith in Cambodia on the other side of the world from where we are right now. This Morning, or sometime last night or yesterday evening on our calendar and schedule, Luke and Soka and their gathering of believers in their little village in Cambodia would have gathered for worship on Sunday there as they plant a church in Cambodia. And was that an event of no significance? In the eyes of the world, it's really small. In fact, it's so small the world doesn't even pay attention to it or know that it's there. But there is, in the eyes of God, no thing bigger than the coming of God's word to his people. Even as you come here to the Dallas Children's Theater and have, now as we celebrate this afternoon, for 13 years, we've been coming to this theater for this purpose to gather for worship. Now, I I recognize, and I'll be the, the first to admit here, that, and John might disagree with me, with all due respect, but... Your preachers who tend to grace this pulpit with what they have to grace it with don't tend to be the best orators in the world. And we don't tend to be the the funniest comedians or the most creative poets, perhaps, or the most persuasive uh, speech writers or something in, in the world. You know, maybe we're not those things. But when you come here to this theater and the word of God comes to his people, there is not a greater, more significant thing that can possibly happen on the face of the earth as the word of God comes to his people. This good news is small in the eyes of the world, but let it not be small in your eyes and your ears because this good news is good in contrast to bad news and we know that because this good good news also is candid about the condition of the world. It's candid about the condition of the the world. That word of God that came to John sent him out into the wilderness, out into the the Jordan River region outside of east of Jerusalem, down those rocky terrain desert areas out towards the, the river there. And it sent him out there and he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Luke tells us. And that proclamation brought people to hear it, both common people and religious people. And to all of them, John spoke very candidly, didn't he? You brood of vipers, he says. That's no way to build a crowd. Although maybe it is for a moment until they stone you to death. But John wasn't afraid of that. You brood of vipers, he said to them. I mean, he's For those who know a little bit about their Old Testament, he probably is helping them to remember Genesis chapter 3 
the first viper, the, the serpent that came into the garden that brought sin and death into the world, temptation to the first man and woman. John, in some sense, is saying to all these people, look, you're just his offspring. I know who you are. I know your hearts. I know where you come from. You're just a brood of vipers, all of you people are. He called them on their condition. And it seems rude, but it's actually an act of grace, isn't it? I mean, Mary and I, early in our marriage, I can remember we were at some social occasion within the first month of our marriage or something, and and we kind of came up with some humorous situation. It was sort of at my expense because she recognized after eating with people and in this social crowd, I had a piece of food stuck in my teeth. And, you know, you've all been there before, and, and it's sort of that awkward sort of thing. And you don't know it. You can't see it. But who's going to tell you that? And so I remember we came up with a plan. We said, you know, I'm going to give you a signal. Next time that happens, if I, if I tug on my... Well, it's kind of like a baseball steel, steel second base signal. It's, if I tug on my ear, then you know that you need to go and take a look in a mirror to see that there's some reality about you that you don't know. John is doing that very thing to these people. You brood of vipers. He's, he's showing them what they themselves can't necessarily see about themselves. And only in love can one be so candid. John's saying to them, there's something wrong with your condition. There's something wrong with your heart. There's something wrong with your posture towards God. And you need to take a look about it because you are a brood of vipers. And if you've been warned to flee, if you've been warned to escape escape the consequences of this thing, then he says to them, don't depend on your heritage to do it for you. He says, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. God is able to raise up children from these stones for Abraham. And we might say something similar, wouldn't we? I mean, we might say, well, we're Presbyterians. And not only that, of course, we're, we're PCA Presbyterians. You know, we're the, we're the ones that were a denomination born out of the effort to preserve theological purity and gospel proclamation in the world. That, that's who we are. I don't know about those people out there, but that's who we are, at least. I mean, we remember the Protestant Reformation in October, and we, some of us, actually know that this is the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation, right? So, I mean, come on, I'm not that bad. But what does John say to them? No, I mean, God is able to raise up children from the props on this theater stage. He can take the peaches from around the borders here and raise up children from those things. He doesn't need you to raise up children for Abraham. Even you Presbyterians... But we might even say, but I'm, I'm in a Christian family, and I've even been baptized. And as much as we emphasize the importance of that means of grace and how critical it is for the life of the church and God's work to call his people to himself, baptism is no guarantee. I mean, it's effective as a means of grace for what? To call you to faith, to exhort you to believe the gospel, to to remind you to turn away from temptation and trust in the righteousness of Jesus. Baptism is, is effective for those means, but it's no guarantee. You can't escape the condition in which you are. And so this good news is quite candid about it. Instead, what does John's good news demand of his hearers and even of you and me? 
it demands bear, bear, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He wants for you to show proof. And so, this good news is also revealing. It's revealing of the idols of this world. John wants repentance. He wants repentance that, that leads to the forgiveness of sin. Sin is the operative word here, and, and that's clear from John. And I have no doubt that he was very clear in his, his language to the people that he was communicating to them that, that sin is the problem at hand here. But that term in our culture doesn't translate really well for us now. I, I mean, in, in our American and kind of Christian subculture in which we all have operated and lived, it doesn't translate really well because we've tended to define it according to our own experience and even our own preferences. You know, we have labeled as sin things that are not sin, and we've accepted as good things that are not good, and we've confused the whole notion of what that word is. And so how does John's good news deal with this? It reveals our idols. Because sin is really just the fruit of idolatry. That's what it is. Your actions are born out of your heart. Verse 10, the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And John's answer is, recognize your idols. The fruit of repentance is shown in very tangible forms. You know, you, you can't just say, I repent. You can't just say that. You need to say it, but you can't just say it. You have to show it by recognizing your idols, by actually dealing with them, by turning away from that which you're repenting of. You must show it by tangible action. So the the crowd asks John, what shall we do? They want to be told what to do. And look what John does. He actually tells them. Verse 11. If you have two tunics, that is the type of shirt they would wear under their robe, if you have two tunics, then share it with someone who doesn't have one. Or if you have extra food, then share it with someone who doesn't have food. What's John after? He's after an idol of security. Because, you know, if you have two tunics, well, then you can wear the extra one when it's cold and it'll keep you warm. Or, or if, you, if you've got two of them, then you can wear the second one when the first one wears out or tears or gets dirty. You know, it's just a security measure, just in case. If you got extra food, it's the same thing. And John is after the, the idol of security. <clears throat> and we have an idol of security when we don't trust God to take care of us. So he says, show repentance by way of generosity, by way of giving from what you have that's extra. And then the tax collectors come along. They see this must be a good idea. We're curious too. We want to know what you have to say to us, John. So the tax collectors come and say, what shall we do? And what does John say? Collect no more than you are authorized to do. I mean, he hits them right where they are. You know, he, he doesn't give them some advice that is not pertaining to them. He tells them exactly what hits in their world. Don't collect more than you're authorized to collect. He's after an idol of possessions. Tax collectors would collect a little bit extra on top of what the government had told them to collect so that they could keep a cut for themselves and We have an idol of possessions when we don't trust God to be enough. And so, John says, show your repentance by living and working with honesty. Tangible. 
and very applicable to us. And so then the soldiers also, look, the soldiers come along. They see this is a good idea. So then what about us? What, what shall we do, John? You baptizer, what shall we do in response to this? And John has an answer for them too. He says, don't extort money by threats and false accusations. He Literally, he says to them, don't shake people down. You know, we know that term. Don't, don't shake people down by, by force by threats, by accusations in order to, to intimidate them. And he's after an idol of control, an idol of power. We know that idol. That's the one that we cling to when we don't trust God to be strong for us. And so he says to these guys, show your repentance by living and working with civility and with kindness to those around you. It's very earthy, isn't it? I mean, he's he's suggesting these fruits will prove that your repentance is real. You can't just say, I repent. You can't just say, I'm going to stop being addicted to this thing. Repentance is demonstrated in the reality of turning away from and dealing with your idols. Recognize your idols. The world has so many of them, and, and so do we. I mean, why do you get angry when you get angry? Do you know? Do you know your own heart and mind? Why do you get angry when you get angry? Is it because you're a sinner? Yeah. Duh. But why do you get angry? It's because there's something else under the surface. There's something that you don't trust God to do. That's why you get angry. Why do you lie? When you tell a lie, why do you do it? Kids, have you ever lied to your parents? Parents, have you ever lied to your kids? To each other. You lied to your friend. Why do you lie? When you lie, why do you do it? Is it because you're a sinner? Of course. But there's something more there. Why do you do it? Because there's something under the surface. There's, there's something that you don't trust God to say. Why do you give yourself to your addictions? Hmm? Why do you do it? Is it because you're a sinner? Of course. But why do you do it? It's because there's something under the surface. There's, there's something that you don't trust God to be for you. That's why you do it. Idolatry is, is really something that you think is greater than God. It's something that you place up on the pedestal, as it were, in God's place because you think it's greater than God. Just by your, your fundamental actions and everyday thinking, that's what you do. And, and John's good news reveals it. And it frees you to repent of it. But this good news is also humiliating too, isn't it? It's humiliating before the expectations of the world. Look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Okay, so the people have expectations, don't they? They've seen some things about John and... They have some expectations. One of the great temptations for adults in regard to children is that we see their potential as they grow and we're quick to crown them as champions. Right? So we see children that have athletic ability and we're quick to talk up the Olympic future. Oh, you're going to wear a gold medal one day. I know it. 
Or we see a, a child who's intelligent and we begin to talk up the aspirations of the future. I can see you one day, Nobel Prize winner, the whole world will know who you are. You're so bright and intelligent. Or we recognize a, a child who's musical and we want to begin to talk up the ability and, and, and build it up for future aspirations. Van Cliburn competition in Fort Worth, the greatest musician, pianist that's recognized, that's going to be you. Or we recognize a, a child who's compassionate beyond the compassion of a normal child, and we begin to talk it up. Oh, I can see a future missionary right here. And, and we begin to talk it up, you know. And, and this is one of the big pieces of advice for every one of us as we grow up. Young ones, if you haven't heard this before, listen to it. Old ones, you've heard it before, listen to it again. Don't believe your own press. Right? I mean, how many times have you heard that? How many, how many sports teams have been thrown off in the course of their pursuit of the playoffs because they believe their own press, and they become complacent, and it doesn't work out. Don't believe your own press. John comes uniquely, boldly preaching this message, and so the press begins to generate around him. The people begin to expect something of him. John might be the Christ. John, are you the Christ? The press is building up all around him. And so what does John say? Verse 16. He answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. That, by the way, is an allusion to the work of a slave. And in many cases, even a slave wasn't allowed to do that. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm I'm less than a slave in relation to this one who is yet to come. Next to Jesus, John takes the place of humiliation, doesn't he? And that's what this good news requires of us. Don't believe your own press. Don't adopt a Messiah complex. That's what we call it, right? Don't adopt a Messiah complex. And, and we might think, oh, but I, you know, I wouldn't do that. I was reminded just this past week at lunch with a local RUF campus minister talking about his, his ministry this year, the past few years, and how he's described how it's been a, kind of a, a difficult transition in some ways. And he's had some real, real rough days and seasons in the midst of that. But he said, you know, it's, I'm heading into my fourth year next fall, and it's, things have really begun to turn for the better, and I'm really eager to see what will come next year. And, and it caused me to remember my own very hard third year as an RUF campus minister in Georgia, however many years ago that was, 15 or 16 years ago now. And I can remember very well that hard year of just depression, that students wouldn't respond, they weren't paying attention, they didn't care what I had to say, they wouldn't come to the things I wanted them to come to, the schedule wasn't working right, and things just seemed to be falling apart And it was one of the biggest lessons of my life, which I will confess, I didn't thoroughly learn at the time. And I still am trying to learn. And the lesson was simply this. It became crystal clear that I am not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. And guess what? Neither are you. Neither are you. I mean, think about all the ways that we try to pursue a Messiah complex. I can fix this problem with this person. This, this person that I know, they're, they're my friend, I love them, they love me. I can see what's wrong with them. I can fix this problem with them because, well, I'm Jesus. 
or I, I see this problem with the church. There's a, there's a situation with the church. It's just not right, but I can fix it, and I can do it because I'm Jesus. Or I see this pain in my family that I endure because others in my family afflicted on me, and they cause me all kinds of trouble, and they've got their problems, but I can endure the pain from my family because I'm Jesus. And we do that in so many ways. I can do that. I fill in the blanks. I can do this. I can do that because I'm Jesus. We all have a Messiah complex at different points along the way. But the fact is, no, you're not. You're not Jesus. You're not the Messiah. You're in a humiliating place. This is what this gospel does to you and for you. The people around you may suggest it of you and you may think it of yourselves, but you are not the Messiah. But this good news is humiliating in the best of ways because it takes the pressure off, doesn't it? It allows for you to just be who you are. There's only one Messiah. John says, He will baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand to separate the chaff from the wheat. Only He can do that. This good news is humiliating before the expectations of the world. But it's also costly, isn't it? It's costly in the economy of this world. Look at verse 18. Luke goes on, So with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now John had somewhat famously, you may know, confronted Herod, the Tetrarch, about his illegal marriage to Herodias. Herodias had been Herod's brother's wife, and he had stolen her from him. It was an illegitimate marriage. And John, the prophet, what else are prophets going to do? They told the, the reigning ruler, hey, you're in sin. Your marriage is wrong. You need to repent. This is what prophets would do in that day, right? And John got in a bit of trouble for it, didn't he? And now, for all of John's faithfulness as a prophet of God's word, this is what he gets. The first century Jewish historian Josephus tells us from his own research and experience there in the first century that that when Herod imprisoned John, he sent him off to a, a, a prison fortress on the east side of the Dead Sea, about 50 miles away from Jerusalem. It was an isolated, desolate place next to a dead sea. And this is where John was sent, a place where, you know, his, his friends would have to travel to get to him. And they did. They went to see him. But it was a real hardship on all of them. And this is what John got for that. And then, with a foolish birthday oath, you may remember, Herod had John beheaded. How can the good news be so bad? I mean, how can it be so bad? How can it be that this good news is small in the eyes of the world? How can it be that this good news is so candid about the condition of the world and about our own souls? How can it be that this good news is revealing of the, all the idols that we love to cling to? How can it be that it's humiliating before the expectations of the world? It's also costly. It costs John his freedom. It costs John his head. And it will cost you too. Even if not in such dramatic ways, Lord willing. Because of the seeds of the so-called 
prosperity gospel, which is, is so pers- persuasive and rampant in this world, even we who reject it feel its pull. You know, we, we somehow implicitly in our hearts and our minds, we expect for this good news to make our lives better. Maybe not materially, but we expect it to make our lives better. We expect it to make my relationships more peaceful or to make my self-awareness to be more confident. Or maybe we expect it to make my perspective to be more optimistic. Surely it's going to make our lives better in some way or another. And sometimes maybe it will do some of those things to some degree. But this good news is costly because it shows you the reality of the brokenness of this world and of the brokenness of your own soul and that of others around you. And it's painful. It's costly. But it's still good news, isn't it? It's still good news. How? How is it still good news? Well, what was John heralding? Remember, Luke informs us from his biblical theology as he draws the Old Testament into his account and reminds us of what Isaiah had said so many years before. What is, what is John heralding? He's heralding, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And what Isaiah described that Luke brings in to John the Baptist's account is, this is the announcement of the arrival of a king. In the, in the ancient days when a, a king would travel out from his capital into his kingdom, he would send heralds out ahead of him to to announce his coming. And he would even send his laborers, his engineers, as it were, to go out and, if necessary, to actually build roads. That's where we get the term a king's highway. In St. Louis, Missouri, where we lived for a time where the the Quins are moving soon, there is the king's highway right there in the middle of St. Louis. That's what it's still called. The king would send his people out to, to build a highway to level the the rough places to raise up the valleys, to, to, to make things smooth so that the king could arrive. And John is the most influential person among men because he's the one who announces the arrival of the king. He is the one who announces the arrival of the one who can fill the valleys of your soul. He's the one who announces the arrival of the one who can make low the mountains of your life. He's the one who announces the arrival of the one who will strengthen, straighten the crooked, and make smooth the rough. His way is prepared, and he has come in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would help us as we even now prepare to come to these communion tables to believe your good news for us, to believe your word, to recognize that your good news is life for us. We pray, Father, that as we eat the bread and drink the wine, that we would recognize the body of the Lord before us and see that your means of grace is given to increase our faith, to make us strong in you because you first are strong. And for this we give you praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.